This is Black Lines and Billables, a podcast about legal technology and innovation and law firm associate success and development. I'm Christian Lang, editor of the Black Lines and Billables blog. We started this podcast in large part to take a deeper dive into some of the topics and perspectives we explore on the blog and to flesh out and follow up on some of the valuable advice offered by our fantastic guest posters. Today, I'm very excited to be continuing one of those conversations begun on the blog with Patrick Delaney, the author of our inaugural View from the Client Side post and guest host of this podcast's first episode, where he excelled in the Herculean task of making me sound good and keeping me out of trouble. So, Patrick, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me back. To set the stage, our nascent View from the Client Side series is part of B&B's Associate Success and Development Programming. That programming focuses on sharing tips and tricks for success that can help law firm associates learn the ropes and excel at their firms, and the View from the Client Side series specifically seeks to incorporate and highlight the perspective of in-house lawyers and other clients on what makes their outside counsel effective. In particular, we're keen to explore and tease out how moving from a law firm to the client side of the relationship informs a lawyer's understanding of what it means for a law firm associate to be great at their job. And for that, Patrick brings a great perspective to the table. He was a fellow M&A lawyer with me at Davis Polk in New York, and he now serves as corporate counsel in the Office of General Counsel of PwC, where he works with a range of outside lawyers at different firms. In his blog post entitled, In-House Looking Out, Four Tips for Outside Counsel, Patrick details four simple yet critical tips for how firm lawyers striving to provide great client service can and should approach the advice they're delivering to clients. And all four tips set up interesting follow-up discussions and questions. So let's dive right in. The first tip you offer, Patrick, is on always knowing the business impact. Mm-hmm. Give us a couple words to you know, communicate to the listeners who haven't yet reviewed the blog post what, what the concept is here. Yeah, well, look, this one, like, frankly, all of the tips sounds pretty basic, but is pretty fundamental to, to getting the advice right. Whenever I have an internal client here at PwC come to me and ask me a legal question, They're asking the legal question to get to an underlying business impact, right? Like they want to know what this is going to do for their bottom line or for their risk profile or for their processes even. And the legal question is really just a a means, like a stepping stone of getting to that underlying answer. And when you're outside counsel, sometimes the questions come to you in a way that seems sort of abstract, right? Like somebody's like, well, what are the regulations that pertain to, you know, X? And really where that question is coming from and where it's leading to is an impact on the business of your client. Now, you're always going to be ahead, I think, as outside counsel, if you can go back to your client and give them not just a legal answer, although that's necessary, but also an answer to the underlying question, right? What's what's this impact is this going to have on your bottom line? Now, in some contexts, that's really easy to do, right? Um, we estimate your legal exposure through litigation or fines could be as much as X dollars. Sometimes it's going to be a little bit harder. Sometimes it's going to be something along the lines of, well, we think it's going to be necessary to check each of the contracts for X, Y, and Z, or we think you're exposed to a degree of risk associated with regulatory enforcement or counterparty claims, any number of things. But the real trick here, and I think the real lesson for most people, is don't just give the legal answer, right? Like go a little bit further, give them something that helps them answer the question 
internally? And that's the business question. It's such an important point. And, and I think junior associates are so susceptible to doing this not the right way because they are coming from an environment where they're taking exams and they're only answering questions in the abstract. You know, And that, that's exactly right. And the, the other difficulty with this often is that sometimes without asking, you won't know where the client is coming from. And context is is key. So as a junior, like some people kind of are a bit reticent, you know, they, they, they're not prepared to ask the questions. One of the really interesting things you see about partners, you know, particularly good partners, is they, they always have a ton of questions the moment that initial call comes in. They're like, well, what is it you're trying to do? What context is this coming up in? What's your, you know, your risk tolerance on this kind of thing? As a junior, you need to be asking those similar kinds of questions. And the reason is, once you have that context, you can start to answer the underlying questions in a much more kind of thoroughgoing way. Again, that's also a very important point. I think junior associates are always so scared that uh, a piece of information they don't have isn't because they haven't asked for it. It's because everyone expects them to know it or they should know it or they're worried that it would be a dumb question. Yeah. Uh, and you really just have to find ways to suppress that instinct in so many contexts when you're getting, when you're, when you're getting an assignment both externally and internally. One of our posts on the blog, as I think you know, is on how to handle staffing meetings appropriately. Mm-hmm. And one of the most important bits of advice from that piece is suppress that little voice in the back of your head that says, Oh, I should probably know the answer to this, so I'm not going to speak up and ask. You got. I mean, you have to you, ask. You have the question. to ask. I mean, look, smart questions are the best kind of questions to ask, but I still think even dumb questions are better than no questions at all. Right in the in the hierarchy of of what you should be striving for. At least if you ask a dumb question, you get it out there and you get the answer and you can move on to the smart questions. If you don't ask any questions at all, you, you're stuck at you know kind of square one the whole time. Clients don't mind it. Like, I'm in a hurry when I'm on the phone, but I'm not in so much of a hurry that I can't give somebody the information they need to answer my question for me. Like, that is always a priority. So feel free to ask the questions. It will give you the context. You'll give better advice. And also, and this is pretty important, you'll learn the business that your client is in, right? And that's how you build a client relationship is starting to understand the context, starting to be able to give them more valuable advice, knowing what it is that they do day in, day out. Once you have that, you start to build rapport, you start to develop relationships with the clients, and that takes you a long way when you're talking about progression within a law firm. Yeah, a great point. And to your point about I'm always happy to give advice and answer those questions, believe me, even as not uh, having practice in-house, similar dynamic with senior associates and junior associates, the incremental annoyance you'll feel by being asked, being paused to answer that one extra question is nothing compared to the annoyance you'll have when the work product comes back. It is not what you need. <laughs> yeah. But all because there was a mistaken assumption or something, you know, the, the, the process was broken or the information wasn't shared. So look, it's critical. Try and frame your answers in a way that a, not just a lawyer, but a business person could understand and expect also a little bit of pushback sometimes, right? So I think an important part of understanding your client's needs is they don't view things through the lens only of legal risk. In fact, you know, I would, somebody once told me there's no such thing as legal risk. There's only business risk. Now, I don't, <laughs> I don't entirely buy that formulation, uh, partly because neither I nor any of the people I work for want to go to prison, yeah. right? But 
by the same token, it, it is sort of pointing in the direction of an underlying truth, which is that a lot of legal analysis is reducible to business impact. A lot of legal risk is reducible to business risk in one way, shape or form. And if you can start doing that extra step, the additional kind of analysis, you're really helping out your clients. And, and in fact, you're becoming a better lawyer, which is you know, equally, if not more important. Yeah, you made, I want to circle back to the very beginning of your answer. You used an interesting phrase that I think is really important to flag. You said, when my internal clients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think this is a really important point, and it, it relates to something that I might label, you know, the evolution of an associate's understanding of their role, right? When you show up as a junior associate, you're getting questions from your your senior associate. You're like, oh, I, I got to try to pull together some information, answer this question. You might pull together cases and send them a bunch of highlighted cases or something like that. Um, and you, you, you learn later, oh, they're asking me for something that seems quite discreet, but it's part of a bigger picture. I need to understand what the bigger picture is so I can give them something they can actually use. And then in the very same way, you start to develop an understanding, oh, well, we, the associates together, are just putting together work product that the partner can use. What does it need to look like when it leaves my senior associate's desk so the partner can use it? And then the next step in that analysis is it's all in service of the client advice. What does that advice need to look like? But don't stop there, I think, is, is, is relates to what you just said, because oftentimes your contact at the client is a lawyer who has a sort of lawyer-client dynamic in, in their internal uh, in their internal structure, and you need to be helping to set them up for success. So thinking about what is my counterpart going to be asked? What are the follow-up questions they're going to get? How can I give them the information to always have the answers? How can I help them stay one, one step ahead? How can I help them look good? And that's what really, really helps uh, if you're liaising with a lawyer on the other side. Yeah, I, I mean, we, we should dispel a myth about going in-house um, <laughs> right out of the gates because I think it's important to do it. You, you know, some people think about it as going to the client side when you move in-house. And look, there's a degree of truth to that, right? Like I, I will pick up the phone and speak to some of my former colleagues and ask them for things, right? And that's a very different dynamic. <laughs> but I'm asking them for things because I am being asked for things. I, I, you know, have to sing for my supper too. I have internal clients and um, they're asking me for things. And often they're asking me for things because they too have people that they need to provide answers to or projects that they need to complete. So recognizing that you're a link in a chain, you know, or um, otherwise producing something that has a, a, an endpoint a bit further along than you might initially realize helps you help the next person in the chain, right? If you can think about not just what they've asked from you, but what they're going to have to deliver to the next person, you're doing them a huge favor. You're saving them time, right? And saving them time is, is just critical. The other thing I think is that you'll, again, have a little bit more context as to what the ultimate you know, work product is going to be, what the ultimate concerns are. And then finally, and this one's pretty important, if you're answering in a narrow way or you're focusing just on what you've been asked and you deliver something to the next person in the chain that doesn't give them what they need, you're adding to their workload, right? Like it's just, it's the inverse of providing the best advice you can. When you provide narrow or unhelpful advice, they have to do more work, 
right? They have to read your long memo without an executive summary that has, you know, the lead buried like right at the end. And they have to summarize it now into some digestible format that summarizes the business impact for the next person in the chain. If you can do that for them, they will love you forever. This is a great segue into point number two that you address in, in the piece, which is always have alternatives, you know, of course, if there are any, uh, and a recommendation. Um, and it picks up right where you were just leaving off. So talk us through a little bit about this point, um, presenting alternatives and a recommendation. Yeah. So I think, you know, certainly in the corporate context, law firms are pretty good about communicating this to, to junior associates. Um, certainly in the US. I mean, one of the interesting things about it is that the legal culture can be quite different in other parts of the world and lawyers can conceive of their, their job a little bit differently. But this one, this one bears repeating. If I come to you and I say, look, I have a project and it requires me to do the following three things, but I understand that there might be some legal risks associated with one or more of these three things. Can you give me some advice? If you turn around and say, of the three things, you can do two, but not the third one. Okay, that, that's great. You've given me legal advice. What am I supposed to do? I've still got to do three things, right? And I've, I've put three, you know, proposals on the table and you shot one down. But you haven't given me anything more than that. Now I have to play the game of like, what about, right? I don't want to play the game of what about. I don't, I don't want to say, well, what if I did, you know, X, Y, and Z instead of A, B, and C? Like, and then you sort of turn around and you say, oh, well, turns out X and Y don't work, but Z does. And I'm like, well, what if we did A, B, and Z? Like, I, I don't want to be having that conversation. It's a waste of my time, and it's often a waste of the lawyer's time too. If you know that your client is trying to get from point A to point B, and there's a roadblock in the way, tell them about, you know, the detour route that's available. And you've, you've got to do that. Otherwise, it becomes very frustrating, I think, um, when you're in-house. And, and partly for the reasons we just talked about. My internal clients still want to get to the end point, right? And all I've got for them right now is a no. And I want to be able to give them a no but, right? No, that doesn't work as originally conceived, but you know, there's a way that we could get you to somewhere similar or as close as we can. Now, look, we live in the real world, right? And sometimes there is nothing but the no, right? Like it's just no period. Um, and in those cases, you need to at least demonstrate to your client that you thought about alternatives, right? So if you can't give me a, you know, look, your first option doesn't work, but here's a a second or third option for you to consider. At least be able to say to me, look, I looked at your first option, it didn't work. I thought maybe the second option would work. Turns out it doesn't work either. I thought this third option might work. Turns out, no, we're, we're all out of luck. At least then I don't have to play the game, right? Like I don't have to say, what about, what about, what about? Um, because those conversations are truly, truly frustrating. So it does take a little extra time. Right? It takes a little extra initiative. But if you think of yourself as a problem solver, you save me the grief as, you know, um, an internal lawyer of having to come up with all the ideas myself. And that's a, a you know, hugely valuable uh, thing to be doing for your clients. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's a really important point. I, th there's a, a delicate balance to be struck 
between anticipating your client's needs, you know, being one step ahead, taking a view, but not getting too far ahead of them. Mm-hmm. So that you're trying to skip steps and you're trying to cut to the chase and cut right to the end of the page. I think a lot of juniors struggle with the first part, even just taking a view that having the the guts, for lack of a better word, to step up and say, here's what I think, if it's not clear cut. Um, but you also have to give your clients enough background, enough information that, that the judgment calls are still reside on their side of the table. And they're in a position to own those decisions and, and, and feel comfortable making them. So it is a kind of an interesting and delicate balance that you need to strike with your clients. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And look, sometimes too, I mean, people are concerned about kind of going down the garden path, right, before their clients have given them instructions or they're worried about running up to significant a bill. I mean, it's, it's good to have those concerns in mind. I, I understand that. Um, you also do want to allow the decision-making to be done by your client. They will in all likelihood resent the idea that, that you've done decision-making for them. But you can, you can fix a lot of these problems by just communicating. Some some of the best interactions I've had have been with lawyers who've sort of said, "Look, we're just getting into the analysis now. You, we're going to give you the final answer in a day or whenever it's due, but it's becoming apparent that we might want to think about these other things as well, or consider these alternatives." And that's great. I mean, that then gives me the option to say, "No." Let's not go down that path. We're not, we don't have an appetite for that kind of risk. Or it allows me to say, yes, that's great. I want you to spend the time on that. And giving me you know, transparency and control over those things is, is super, super helpful. And you know, we were, were talking about it a little bit earlier. Um, this is kind of akin to the asking the questions bit. Like, Feel free to reach out to your client because reaching out might be helpful. Like, You imagine yourself to be bothering them, but... Oftentimes you can be saving them time and money and aggravation by reaching out and, and saying, look, should we go down this path or this path or are you more concerned about this or that? Um, I think you know, keeping that line of communication open is, is important. Picking up on that point, um, also worth bearing in mind that not all communication is verbal or explicit. So mm. it's, it's really important. To be reading the cues, if you're in an in-person meeting, to read your client's body language, how they're reacting, if they're being short or not. Sometimes your client might be wanting a very quick yes or no answer, and you need to be able to cut to the chase and give them the answer they need. Sometimes they really want all of a lot of background. They they really want to be teed up fully. So you need to be able to, in the words of uh, one of my old partner mentors who wrote us a great post um, for the partner perspective series is change your style on the fly. Like be aware of what's happening on the other side of the table, what your client needs from you and give it to them in the way they need it from you. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to name any names throughout this process. Um, but there have been times as, you know, an in-house counsel where I've been on the phone with outside counsel and I'm, I'm trying to get to the end of the conversation, you know, and, and move things along a little at a bit more of a clip. I've got other things to turn to. And, you know, this outside counsel is like ducking and weaving. I'm like, <laughs> what, what are you doing, man? Like this is supposed to be a 15-minute conversation and here we are 45 minutes in and you're asking me, well, look, have you thought about this? Are you really sure? And I'm like, I've answered all these questions. So you do have to be able to read that. Look, that can be a difficult one to learn, to be honest. But I, I think, you know, your client will have 
different needs and different priorities in different moments, just be attuned to it. Just have your antenna up. And as you say, be, be prepared to respond to the imperatives. Once you get to know your client, by the way, you'll know when they're in a damn hurry. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, like that will be crystal clear to you. And you'll know when they're not happy with you too. Um, so responding to those kind of cues is pretty important. I'm a big believer in, you know, sometimes taking the step of making things explicit that weren't previously. I've had people reach out and say, look, we thought maybe you weren't happy with what we've provided. And sometimes the answer is, no, we were perfectly happy. We were just in a rush, had to get to something else. And sometimes the answer is, well, yeah, actually, here's the three things that we were a bit dissatisfied with. And that actually helps us and, you know, outside counsel, I think, because they say, okay, got it, realize that we, you know, didn't cut to the chase in the way we should have, we'll, we'll fix it. And that's a credit to those people. I mean, having the courage to do that is is a great thing. And again, you know, consistent with this theme, makes you a better lawyer. Uh, that's also a great segue to the next point that you raised in the blog post, which um, the header was not wasting time, but that's that actually does a little bit of a disservice to the broader point, which had to do, I think, also with preparedness and being in a position to do exactly some of the things we've been talking yeah, about, calibrate and, and change. It is. I mean, so look, the, the funny one about this one is if I say to a first year associate, don't waste time, the first response that they have is always, oh, wow, it took me like eight hours to do this thing and it should have taken me like five. That That's not the wasting time that people care about. The wasting time is I was on the phone with you for an hour and I should have been on with the phone with you for 30 minutes, right? And, you know, this is not universally the case, but for the most part, I would trade somebody putting in an extra couple of hours of preparation for a sharper, more focused answer that was more responsive to my needs delivered in a better fashion. And the classic example of this is the long memo, right? <laughs> and, you know, I can't remember who it was that, that wrote it in one of their letters, but they, you know, it's sort of closed with, I'm sorry, the letter was so long, I didn't have time to make it short. And it's, <laughs> it's the same thing with legal memos, right? Like you, you, you can boil stuff down once you understand it better, once you've started to think it through. You can be sharper in, in the lead-in points, you know. Um, I think one of the recommendations we make um, – or, or that's in the, the blog post is, you know, use executive summaries, use, use bullet points, use, use headings. Like this, you don't have to make it harder for the person that's reading it. You have to make it easier, right? I want to know within 30 seconds of opening the document what the basic idea is. And I'm going to need to go deeper because we have to. I don't want to get to the end before I have an idea what the conclusion is. So things like that. The thing about that stuff is it takes time, right? So... The first draft of your memo is, is often longer. It's a little bit more circuitous in the route it arrives or it takes to get to the conclusion. Do a second draft, you know, it, it's valuable. And so when I think about not wasting time, that's what I think about actually is the time I'm spending trying to get the value out of the advice I'm receiving, not the time that somebody is spending developing the advice, right? So think about it that, that way, I think. It, 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 it's solid gold advice. Some of the, the content we have that, again, caters to junior associates, try to underscore the point that great work has a number of component pieces. It's not just about great analysis like it may have been in law school. And it's not just about the timing, even though that's critically important as well. It's also about the form you deliver it in. 
uh, and for all the reasons you mentioned, it's so incredibly important. And just to underscore a couple of the points you made, I think it's worth really highlighting there's kind of two big takeaways out of this conversation for me, which is one, you have to learn to um, distill, prioritize, triage. You have to you have to cultivate that judgment facility that allows you to know what needs to be pulled up top and put up top. Uh, and dovetailing with the conversation we just had, not just the conclusions, but the key bits of information that support those conclusions. In one of the most effective ways, as you say, have an executive summary or a short answer saying, look, here's, here's, here's my take and the next best alternative. And here's the reason why I came to that conclusion in three sentences. But down below, I've included a lot more detail if you want to dig into it further. And, and it still gives you the opportunity to have the CYA exercise or provide your client with the longer form answer if it's really not something that's perfectly reducible to the short form. Um, but that's a really powerful technique. And the other thing that I think is really powerful, and this also takes a lot of time, is delivering advice in plain, clear, and accessible language. I think we as lawyers hide behind jargon and quotes and recitation so often. And one of the reasons we do that is it, it requires an incredibly high level of understanding to be able to put something into your own simple words. And to the point you were just making, it's really, that's, that's the form it needs to be in for it to be useful to people often. And you might need to take the extra time to really understand something um, before you can deliver it to your client in the form that they need it. So there's, there's an interesting kind of phenomenon that I've noticed, and that is, you know, certainly if you're a, an associate at a, a large law firm, the direct client interaction you're going to have is often with a, another lawyer, right? And in a lot of ways, that can actually make you a little bit lazy about some of this stuff, right? Uh, specifically the stuff you were talking about. You can have a kind of legalistic conversation with that person. You have enough shared understanding that they'll kind of interpret it the way that you want. Once you're in-house, a lot more of your conversations are with people who have no legal background and, frankly, no interest in, in whatever legal concept it is that you're currently focused on. They want the answer in practical terms, right? I think particularly moving from a sort of more academic focus when you talk about law school to a more practical focus where you talk about workplaces, you have to make that transition, right? Like you, you have to really get it down to brass tacks. And the most important way to do that is to explain stuff in simple terms. There's a ton of tricks around this, um, but Here's one that I've found useful, right? Firstly, well, let me give you two. One, don't say something in a complex or jargonized way that can be said simply. And figuring out how to say it simply might take you a little bit of time, but you should be able to first identify when you've kind of dumped some jargon into something and you know that you need to focus on it. The second thing is that it can be easier for people to process a series of simple points which produce a complex idea than it can be to understand a complex idea delivered in its totality. And the law can be pretty good about this, right? So there is a simple rule with a series of exceptions, right? And sometimes those exceptions have exceptions. But the easiest way to deliver it to somebody is to say, well, look, generally speaking, you're not allowed to, you know, pay a referral fee uh, in the following regulated circumstances. But 
You can pay a referral fee so long as it meets these following criteria. And the criteria can be satisfied in the following way. That's the way you give somebody the answer. You don't say your contract needs to provide for the referral fee to be focused on this percentage, not the other percentage, because it's not the way somebody's brain kind of organizes information. If you can do simple general statements and then provide the complex or detail-focused points in a subsidiary fashion, people will follow you through that chain and people without a legal background can follow you through that chain. Much harder to deliver that sort of fully formed into the world, um, certainly in your writing. So it's, it's a tip that I use. The other thing about it that it sort of kind of dovetails with is that's exactly how indented bullets work. So, you know, you, you may want to take that tip and apply it to, you know, bulleted answers. I, um, I can't tell you how many internal emails I send uh, that are bulleted for exactly that reason. It, it forces you to structure your ideas a little bit differently from the way you might do in, in full prose. So picking up on the idea that you've got a complex situation, maybe you lose something in the distillation in the bullet forms. Um, your client maybe doesn't grasp the full nuance of something you've tried to communicate. Tip four that you offer uh, mm. as the in-house lawyer looking out is tell us when we're wrong. This, um, this deals with the great character flaw of, of um, certainly me and a number of other people, and that is that we imagine ourselves to be smarter than we are, right? <laughs> um, and while I may not discover the humility that I should anytime soon, I can at least uh, be prevented from doing harm to myself through the assistance um, of, of outside counsel. It is often the case, right, that people get the wrong end of the stick for whatever reason. And no matter how, somebody, how smart somebody is, um, that will happen sometimes, particularly outside their domain of expertise. And you need to save that person from themselves. You need to be able to pipe up in a difficult situation and say, look, I just think you might actually be a bit mistaken about X, Y, and Z. And that's not just something that you should do for your clients. You should also be doing that for the senior associates that you work for or for partners that you work for. They are not paying you to sit mutely in the background. They want to know when they've said something incorrect, right? Now, how you present that, you know, be tactful. Don't, don't be obnoxious. But the advice where you correct somebody is more valuable than any of the other advice, right? Like that's the bit where you're saving somebody from, you know, potentially serious legal consequences, but also internal embarrassment, right? Like I don't want to go to my internal clients with the wrong advice. If you correct me, that is far, far more important to me than momentary embarrassment about being wrong. Do not save my feelings, save my job. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Never forget that as the associate, you're often the one closest to some, some of the facts closest to the law and always be on the lookout. And one of the things that this advice you delivered in the blog post and now makes me think of is, you know, what is the holy grail for the outside lawyer, for, for the firm lawyer? And it is to be the trusted advisor mm. of your clients. And think about what does that mean to me? How, how would somebody come about being my trusted advisor? You have to be willing to speak up, catch those things, have the courage of, 
uh, of, of piping up, as you say, when something is going off the rails. Um, so for me, that's a pretty good lodestar if you're trying to calibrate, should I speak up? Should I not speak up? What do I need to do? I think it's much more likely that people keep quiet when they should speak up than vice versa. And bear in mind your advice about tactful communication. Yes. <laughs> and also bear in mind, going back full circle to the beginning of this interview, that the strictly legal considerations aren't the only thing on the table. Mm-hmm. This all, most of these things do reduce to a business calculus. It's very difficult, as you said, um, to, to cultivate that facility. And the senior lawyer may be making a judgment that, you know, whereas there is some risk here that, you know, technical risk from a business and commercial perspective might be completely reasonable and manageable. So, but I agree with you. If you're, if you have the right amount of the right combination of humility and also trust in yourself, you can, you can really start to find your way. Also, you'll be able to read the room, right? So on those occasions where you say something and you shouldn't have said it, I guarantee you it will be immediately <laughs> obvious. That, that, now that may be a humbling experience in and of itself, but I think it's educational. I mean, you will learn over time through practice, through experience, when is the right moment to say something and, and when is not. But I, I too often see people, particularly, you know, like a third year or a fourth year, and I'm like, by now I'm expecting you to be a big part of this conversation and they're still silent, right? And don't be that person. Right. That, that's you, you've taken a wrong turn somewhere. Start speaking up if you are that person. Now's your chance. Um, and granted, th- there may be momentary embarrassment for you if it doesn't quite go the way you expect. But it is far, far worse to be adding nothing to an important conversation. Unfortunately, it's time for us to wrap up. Patrick, thank you again for all the insight and advice. My pleasure. Uh, and thank you, listeners, for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed this deeper dive into one of our most popular posts. If you haven't yet read Patrick's piece, head over to blacklinesandbillables.com where you can find it under the View from the Client Side series. And we'd both love to hear your reactions, thoughts, and questions related to the piece, so please leave comments on the blog post to weigh in or reach out to us through social media. You can find us under Blacklines and Billables on Facebook and LinkedIn, and you can tweet at us using our handle at bnblegal, at bnblegal. We'll be back again soon with our next episode. Thanks for listening.